Hello, and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups, where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. Today is Friday, October 13th, 2023, and I'm Alex, and I'm joined today, as always, by my dear friend and senior TechCrunch reporter, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, hello. How are you? Hey, Alex. How are you? Uh, You know, you ever have one of those weeks when you have like a lot of tasks, but not a lot of time? And uh, uh-huh. you finish each day a little bit further behind. That's been my work week. Oh, sorry. I know that sucks. I hope it ends on a better note. It may or may not. But the good news is for this show, we will not be overwhelmed because we have our third wheel here. It is <laughs> Sorry, that, that sounded really dismissive. Kirsten's here, everybody. We're very excited. How are you, Kirsten? Oh, thank you for the dismissive, but transportation related <laughs> pun. So it's accepted. I'll treat it as a compliment and not as an insult. <laughs> Um, it, it was meant to be a compliment, but then halfway through saying it, I realized that third wheel it does have a pejorative aspect to it. I, I meant that you complete our our trike. Well, I'm happy to be back on the trike. And I actually just came back from the Up Summit, which is this super interesting event in Dallas. And it was all about very focused on aviation startups. A lot of a lot of rah-rah aviation startup talk, but also some other stuff. So it's pretty interesting. Well, I'm very excited about aviation tech because I do have a number of private flying hours that I would like to one day convert into a pilot's license. So I will uh, drag you over after the show and make you tell me all about that. But on the podcast today, in the deals of the week column, we have Alavia Canopy Servicing and a raise all about EV charging. Then we're going to ask, why are we seeing so many startup shutdowns? And then finally, tech and the construction labor situation. It's a varied show. It's an interesting show. And I think we have something here for everybody. Yeah. I do want to mention before we jump into all the deals, we do want to acknowledge that many of our listeners may be impacted by the Israel-Hamas war. We are not on the ground covering that, but we are uh, covering how this touches our world and tech. So please keep an eye out on TechCrunch for that coverage. And of course, we are hoping that everyone in the area is as safe as they can be as quickly as they can be. Now, moving back to topics a little bit closer to our wheelhouse in California recently, a law passed that does mandate disclosure by venture capital firms about whom they are investing in. And if that sounds familiar, that's because we talked about it a little bit earlier on the show when we had Dom on this couple of weeks back and it has since passed. So there's an update. And if you are curious about this, the gist of it is that it requires venture capital firms that do business or are based in California to annually report the diversity of the founders that they are backing. It's kind of an opt-in on the founder side, but I think it's mandated on the venture side. There's a lot of criticism from some venture players about this, but it's now going to be law in California where everyone has to do business if they're in venture, more or less. So should lead to some interesting conversations and data down the road in 2025. All that aside, Marianne, the best-named venture capital firm of all time, Aliavia, Aliavia, Aliavia. I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's a cool name. I'm not so sure either, but it is it is a cool name. It almost sounds like Olivia, but anyway, it is a very cool firm out of Australia, which I love because I very rarely get to talk about anything coming out of Australia. Catherine Shu covered this. It's a venture firm that recently closed its first fund. It was about almost $9 million US dollars. And this is really interesting to me. So and invest in female-led startups, especially those that want to bridge the Australian and American markets. And I think there are at least three partners or principals that are female. And so, you know, I, I like this for a lot of reasons. I mean, first of all, we know based on Dom's reporting that only 1.9% of total funding last year went to female-led startups, which is just 
dismal. It was it was even less than in 2021, which is very disappointing. Those numbers should be going up, not down. So anytime we see a new venture firm working to increase those numbers, I, I get happy. Even if it's not a huge amount of money, it's it is something. They've already invested in about I think nine female founded startups. And by female founded, that means at least one founder that is female. A, a nuance to the data, because I want to make sure we're, we're comparing apples and apples. The 1.9% figure, I believe, was for all female founding teams. So all women, no men. Um, whereas uh, okay. this company is going to be investing in mixed gender teams as well, uh, which do represent a higher fraction of total funding. Not trying to dismiss how inequitous venture capital funding totals are, but I just want to make sure we have the, yeah, the it's right. important distinction. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think it's super cool. Kirsten? Yeah. I'm interested in the Australia US focus. Do you have any insight just from your perspective, not even just from Catherine's story, but in general, like the tech scene in Australia, obviously smaller than the US, but what is your vibe on or take on the Australian tech scene? And, and does this track, I guess, with what's happening there? You know, honestly, I, I do not know a lot about the Australian tech scene. I covered maybe a couple of startups out of the region. But one of the things that this firm is trying to do, they're trying to invest in companies that are Australian founded, but are trying to get into the U.S. They're trying to expand into the U.S. So they're trying to help them navigate the differences between the two markets, help get introductions to potential customers, investors, employees. So I wish I wish I was more knowledgeable about Australia so I could answer this more informatively, but unfortunately I'm, I'm not. I can tell you a couple of the companies they have invested in. One is a Sydney-based online training platform called HowTo. Now they are also in the U.S. They've expanded here and one of their customers is actually HubSpot. So wow, good for them. Yeah. And on the Australian technology scene point, not only have we covered some startups from the country on TechWitch over the years, but there's also like a number of uh, Australian headquartered tech companies that everyone listening to this show has heard of. Canva, may have heard of that. Uh, Atlassian, naturally a relatively big name in the developer tool space. And then Zero, spelled with an X, does, what is it, like small business accounting software or something like that. So there's a number of, of proven success stories in the Australian market. So it makes a lot of sense, I think, to build a fund focused on that. And then also, I want to say that when it comes to helping startup founders bridge a massive geographic and you know maybe to some degree a cultural gap as well. Not a new idea. I, I forget the name of the firm, but I did talk to a couple of folks years ago who were building a venture capital firm whose thesis was, we are going to help American companies expand to their first foreign market in Japan. So this idea of helping people go somewhere else and operate intelligently in a different market that could be lucrative for them is a cool edge for a venture capital firm to offer. So I, I think it's really cool. I'm totally into it, Marianne. I am too. I, I, I again, I, I think it's not about the dollar amount. It's really about the intent. And so I, I love to see it and I hope we see more of it. Absolutely. Sticking to the theme of money in technology, my deal of the week is about Canopy Servicing. It's a company that I covered back in 2021 and then uh, recently caught up with again because they had raised more capital. And I think this is interesting for, for a few reasons. One, I didn't know much about loan servicing. I don't know if you guys ever think about that, but I had never. So I like to learn new things. And so Canopy Software does the work of handling the, the back end of loan servicing. But more interestingly to me is we're seeing a company that raised in 2021, which was, I think we all agree, the peak of the last kind of valuation cycle, uh, raised more money in 2023, certainly a different market. And then the question is, how did they navigate it? So 
Whew, sorry, that was a lot. They raised a $15.2 million Series A one round, not a Series B. We covered their Series A back a couple of years ago, and they did raise it at a slightly lower pre-money valuation, which goes to show that, you know, if you raise at the peak, Marianne, in the fintech world, you're not doomed. You might take a haircut, but certainly if your business is doing well, there's more capital out there for you. Alex, I am impressed. You always manage to get people to tell you these numbers. You got valuation haircut, which a lot of people don't like to admit. So, well, you know, and it's not it's not necessarily a, a shocking or bad thing, but people don't usually like to give those numbers. Well, Canopy didn't want to, and they they're like, we don't usually disclose this, but I had PitchBook data on their Series A and their Series A one that I sent over, and I was like, this is what PitchBook says any comment. And the numbers were off by like a million here, a million there. And so the founder provided some minor corrections mm-hmm. to the numbers. And mm-hmm. uh, and then I, I had them on the record. So I, I don't think and the CEO, Matt Bevins, is perfectly lovely. But I mean, founders don't like to talk about things that are not positive because they're trying to, you know, get people excited. But if you come at them with numbers, you know, they will want them to be correct. Right. But he didn't just do the old the old annoying thing of just saying false if there's one thing that's slightly incorrect and therefore trying to obviate the whole data set. So he gets a lot of points from me there. And it was interesting to see what this looks like in practice. It's helpful for other founders to see, you know, it's hard data. And I also thought it was interesting that they chose to, because it's just so, it's so great when somebody else is covering a fintech story besides me. But I like the fact that he shared the strategy behind raising a series A1 as opposed to a series B. That was actually going to be my question. So one, no one really wants to be sharing valuations, even if it's a down round right now, it seems like. And I'm not sure why that is. But I was really curious as to what the explanation was around going through a Series A1 instead of just a Series B. Yeah. And a lot of times when I see something like this, I get skeptical. You know, are you trying to avoid being judged at a certain kind of threshold for size or growth or whatever? But I I learned a lot. So going back to my point about loan servicing, one thing I didn't really understand is how many companies are involved in lending. And Canopy told me their thesis is essentially every company is eventually going to get into lending. And we talked a couple of weeks back about how not every company is going to be a fintech company, but they'll do some fintech things. I think Canopy's thesis fits into that point. But what this is to say that, you know, they want to go after larger customers, people that do a lot of loans. And if you go after larger companies, your sales cycles are long, right? It just takes a while to land a larger customer than a smaller one. And so my read of this is the company wanted to essentially take on some more capital in its Series A bucket, probably finish some customers they have in the pipeline. And then when they have that revenue locked in and evident, then they can go out and raise a much larger B at a more attractive valuation and therefore limit dilution. So it's more of like a, a, a timing thing than anything else. Does that make sense? It does. Seems smart. Kirsten's nodding her head. So I think I got that right. I'm nodding my head. Yeah. We should go back to putting the video of equity on YouTube. That was so much easier because then we could just like nod our heads and not have to like (laughs) say everything out loud. Like Marianne is laughing. Like, there you go. But yeah, so sales cycles, et cetera. And um, I think it's just really cool. And I love a company that will share data. So we did notice that they had a a slight haircut in valuation. The company also shared a lot about its product and revenue growth. Like uh, they're going to process over a billion dollars this year. They have 80% plus gross margins. They're going to grow ARR two and a half to three X this year. So like they, they dropped a lot of data and I don't cover a lot of funding rounds, but I do love to cover ones that have a lot of information attached to them because then we can learn stuff. So canopy servicing series A1 in the bank. And now we just wait to hear when they raise that B. 
Well, I have a deal that I want to talk about. Um, if you're if you're done talking about fintech, I mean, are we ever actually done talking about fintech, Kirsten? We're done. So <laughs> this is my deal. Uh, EV Passport is a charging infrastructure startup. It's pretty new, which is really interesting to me. 2020 is when it was when it launched, and. To put that in perspective, there's been a ton of other charging infrastructure and software management and companies out there that have been around for a decade. So it was interesting to see them come in. They've already deployed 5,000 chargers in Canada, Mexico, and 35 U.S. states. And they raised $200 million, which is uh, a nice chunk of change. Yes. It's a lot of money. And worth noting is that the raise was from Northleaf Capital Partners, which is a private equity firm that has acquired a controlling stake in the startup. So it's not exactly like a traditional VC deal. The interesting thing about EV Passport is, first of all, we get to talk about a new acronym, Alex, which I think you'll enjoy because you like SAS. So now we've got a new one. I don't even know how you would pronounce it, but it's I-A-A-S, which is ah. <laughs> not ass. So it's, it's not ass, it's, it's, <laughs> but it means so. infrastructure as a service, which is kind of a, it's not a new area, but it's got a new name. Uh, I'm definitely seeing that name around and I'm seeing companies in the software management side and also infrastructure, you know, usually that's coupling of hardware and software together, getting money. And they've been around over the last few years, but now they're they're raising more funds. There's a bunch of deals over the summer, not as large as this. So yeah, I ask. There you go. Uh, because because I'm a child, I want to point out that it is pronounced I ass. And one of my favorite <laughs> elements of covering Microsoft back in the day was, so So you're right that I ass in this case, which is charging infrastructure as a service essentially, uh, versus IaaS in the cloud sense. So there's Platform as a service, which is pass, and then there's IaaS, <laughs> and so you would often be in a meeting with these like relatively buttoned up, you know, people in the cloud space, and they would say IaaS, and then me, the child, would have to not giggle uh, at seeing yeah. someone who's very conservative say ass in a meeting. So yeah, yeah, it's never not funny. I'm stunned that I've never really heard this before, or maybe just didn't pay enough attention to it before. But anyway, I do think it's interesting because infrastructure is. It's just something that appears to be raking in the dollars from investors in all sorts of industries. You know, infrastructure is just, despite this downturn, like in fintech or in, in other industries, keeps keeps getting money. So it's like there's something to be said for being an infrastructure provider, whether it be EV charging or other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And in the EV charging world, of course, it matters because we're getting more and more EVs in the marketplace. The percentage of ownership has increased in California. It's it's actually a large portion of the market share now. And infrastructure challenges are real. And that's what I find interesting here is that charging networks, companies like ChargePoint, which by the way, did just raise, they're publicly traded. They did just raise $232 million this week as well. Network companies have existed. But what we're seeing is a lot of these other companies that are promising a better charging experience, either through some sort of software or in the EV passport situation, really what they are saying is they are infrastructure, but their approach is what they call passing the grandma test, which I'm not sure it does because you still have to use a QR code. But their idea is that you don't have to download an app. You can use a credit card or you can use the QR code when you get to the station and then you go through the payment system that way. And again, there's a lot of experimentation to try to make EV charging a better experience, which right now is 
uh, meh. I would I would describe it as a meh experience. And yeah, I thought this whole scanning a QR code and integrating with a digital wallet, I thought that was that was kind of interesting. They're just trying to make it as easy as possible for yeah. people to use it. Yeah, they're trying to make it as easy as possible. But you know what I found is there are places like even Electrify America, which the app it works better, but there is credit cards. Here's the thing. These these chargers are sitting outside. They're exposed to sun, rain, all this stuff. They rarely have a shade over it, um, unlike a gas station. And uh, in, in Arizona, you know, you go in the summer and you try to use these uh, credit card machines if you don't have the app on an EV charger. And yeah, they just don't work. They're fried. And so the app has been a more successful way for myself. And if you go really old school, if you had an EV back in the day, you had one of, you know, five or six little dongle things that you, you know, attach to your, you know, like for your membership card to the gym or whatever that can, you could use for your EV charger. And so there was all, you had to have a separate one for each network, which isn't great either. So the apps were kind of a better thing, but a simple QR code does work better than having a bunch of apps probably. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want is another app. But what I do like about what EV Passport seems to want to do is to bring these charging points to places that already exist. Like wherever there's a parking spot, there might be an EV charging point. And I, I love the idea of making them pervasive, accessible, and even more easy to access because then, oh my God, range anxiety goes away. Wherever you go, you can charge your car. And frankly, given the price decreases, Kirsten, we've seen, for example, from Tesla when it comes to their EVs lately, it does feel like we're getting closer to a point in which EVs are more accessible to more folks, which means more demand. And if we don't add a lot of charge points, we're going to have congestion like you would not believe. And no one likes that. So right. I, I think it's super cool. And 200 million should give them a long way. Yeah. And uh, final point, where you put these chargers matters. There was a big emphasis early on to put uh, Tesla being a driver of this on highways. So to encourage people, hey, you can have an EV and you can take road trips. But actually, if you look, you know, look in your city, of where EV charges are, they can be, depending on where you live, pretty scarce. And so great, you got to set for a road trip. But what about when you're in town, you don't own a house, maybe you have an apartment and where do you charge? So hopefully they're, it sounds like they're trying to tackle that problem. Yeah. Like they're, they're also teaming up with like multifamily developers, things like that, not just dealing with individual electric vehicle drivers, right? Like, yep. Yeah. So I, uh, Reddit has decided that I should see all the Tesla subreddits and people are like, this hotel said there wasn't an EV charge point, but I found an outlet in their basement. So having less bootleg solutions to charging cars, I think would be really great. All right. Now uh, we have to take a very short break, but when we come back, startups that are shutting down and why? All right, we're back. Now, on the startup front, there's been a number of things going on that we want to discuss, including a number of shutdowns. There's been a couple of companies that are on our list. Marianne, one of these that was on our list this week was Braid. Yes. So earlier this week was on X and happened to come across a post by a founder, not a not an X post, but a blog post that was shared on X. Amanda Payton, she co-founded Braid and it's a fintech or it was a fintech that had created what's kind of this uh, way for people to collectively pool their money together towards a shared thing like a trip or, 
you know, a purchase. And so kind of a shared wallet, if you want to call it. So long story short, the company shut down in September. And what most impressed me about this is that the co-founder, Amanda, she really outlined very, very specifically all the events that led to the shutdown, which I think is really valuable for other founders. Like She went into detail about all the things she thinks that they did right and wrong. And I appreciated her candor because very often, you know, when there's a shutdown, founders, you know, will, will express their regrets and take some blame, but they don't usually get so detailed. No, not at all. And there is so much in this blog post that she wrote that I think is useful. I mean, just to pick one anecdote from this saga, there was a moment when the company was doing well and someone told her, raise right now, do it because this is the moment. And she said that she actually decided to put it off for a little bit. And just because of some other things that happened, that that wound up wounding the business. And so there, there is an element of uh, timing slash luck in building things that I think she does a great job of explaining and talking about like uh, sponsor banks and getting blindsided by things and trying to handle changing market conditions. And I think it, the, the startup story becomes overly simplified at times in how we cover it because we only get to see flashes of light from these companies when they talk to us and they're kind of willing to share more often, but startups do things every day. And so we don't often see the, the nitty gritty and, and more, I don't know, there's just the really hard stuff that, that goes into building every single company. So I appreciated her showing that and not yeah. trying to just overly PR it as they shut down. Right, right. And the last thing I'll say, because I know there are, it's not the only company that has recently shut down, but I, I thought it was interesting that she pointed out that leveraging third-party software, she realized, was not going to necessarily help the company move faster and that building tech in-house would be a lot better for them economically and just overall. And that's another interesting point that I think has been coming up more and more lately, whether or not it's better to build in-house or leverage third-party software. So anyway, read the story, read her post. I think there's a lot of valuable information out there. But Kirsten, you also recently covered another startup that that shut down, right? Shift? Yes, Shift Technologies. One note, though, very briefly on the blog post, it reminds me a couple of years ago of one from the founder of Starsky Robotics, which was a self-driving trucks company. And it was, it was a lot, you could feel the emotion in it, but it was provided so much clarity and so many lessons. And I find that these types of things, not just give you an insight into the company, but are so valuable to other founders. And then he's gone on and created a new startup, also an autonomous vehicle technology, but applying it in a more industrial sense. The company is called Polymath. And I just found like, it'll be interesting to see what Amanda does and if she ends up coming back in a, in a year or two. And I have a feeling that a lot of founders will, if they read it, will get some insight for their own startups. Mm -hmm. So back to Shift. So Shift Technologies is in the online used car marketplace. There was a ton of these companies that came up around, let's say 2014, 2015, Vroom, Carvana, BP, BP got eaten up by fair and then shift bought fair, but shift. <laughs> so a lot of consolidation, but shift just uh, closed down there. They're liquidating. They filed for bankruptcy. And in my post, I sort of break down looking at some of the first day motions of the chapter 11 bankruptcy, what went wrong and why they did go public via a SPAC right in the middle of that, that SPAC boom. And actually the, one of the co-founders, George Arison even wrote a column in TechCrunch. you know, about how to do it and how to navigate it. I won't say that that was the problem. But the big issue um, was that 
they were putting a ton of money into their technology platform and making some really big moves, a merger and an acquisition in, in 2022. And that closed and that was their bet. That was their big technology bet. That was by the end of the year. One was with Carlots and the other was fair. And by February, they were laying off 30% of the staff, closing some of the Carlots mm. locations. And then they did try to make a pivot in June. Uh, they had new management in. But at that point, it was a little too late. They just they couldn't renegotiate financing. So I have a question about the technology investment bit because I read your post and I was curious about this. Is this an example of a less than high margin business trying to support an expensive technology team and essentially having a mismatch between gross profit and operating expenses? Yeah, I mean, in a very simple way, yes, they okay. were. They they had been developing their technology platform for a while, but what they were doing was they were bringing in fairs business as well, which was more dealer focused and sort of incorporating that into the technology platform as well. And so uh, I think that there were just was a few too many moves and on some wasted money as a result of that. And because we don't live in a free money world right now anymore, can't just go get that free money. They had a really hard time you know, renegotiating with folks to give them an extended runway as a publicly traded company. So they are winding down. Everyone has basically been terminated. And and here's one other small detail. At the end of last year, they had something like almost 600 employees. By the time they, for bankruptcy protection, they only had like 144. So that's how small they had gotten in less than a year after making some pretty big bets. That's an impressive slimming down. To add a couple of names to this list, IronNet, which did cybersecurity products, went public, kaput, and then Blue Apron, which went asset light, ended up selling itself to Wonder Group, which is Mark Lore's latest thing. And uh, we picked these. There are other examples of recent shutdowns, but it was fintech, e-commerce slash transport, cybersecurity, and then consumer D2C, showing a broad array of different areas of the startup and recently startup world that have struggled. Yes. Something, though, to remember is that I read recently about 91% of all startups end up failing. So I am, I'm sure there's unfortunately a lot more startups that we just don't even know about, but that is kind of the world of startups, right? And, and a lot of these people, to Kirsten's point earlier, do come back and start other things. I think Amanda alluded to that herself. So this isn't necessarily a doom and gloom section or theme. It's just kind of a, the reality of the startup world. Yeah. After a, a, a massive wave of venture capital arrives and begins to dry up, there will be casualties in the business sense. But for everyone who's going to build something new, we'd love to hear about it when you do it. But we have to move on to our, our last theme. And Marianne, we're going back to your favorite part of the world, the world of hammers, picks, shovels, cement, concrete, rebar, and high rises. We're talking about construction. And there has been some commentary around the world, it seems, that there is a labor shortage for construction everywhere is kind of my read of our reporting. But the question then becomes, will technology companies be able to kind of plug that gap and help construction sites do more with fewer hands? Yeah, I thought this was really interesting. I have a weird interest in the construction tech space just because I used to cover real estate and talk to a lot of developers and contractors. It's a big deal because it affects all of us, right? There's a housing shortage globally with labor shortage in the construction industry. That means everything takes longer to be built, whether that be houses or uh, apartments. And so trying to tackle the problem with technology makes sense. I don't know. This, this is something to keep in mind, though. This is an industry that has 
historically been a little bit slow to adopt technology. So I think it's taken a while for people uh, in the space to kind of come around. But there are there's talks of things like using drones for site surveying, which I think is very cool automation in other ways. Uh, robots used to do things like bricklaying, which and concrete pouring. I have to admit, this almost falls into the self-driving car category lane for me where I start to get a little like drones doing site surveys I'm okay with and and using AI to automate other kinds of tasks but when it comes to things like bricklaying or concrete I start to get a little bit nervous I have to admit because it's structural right right interesting here's my question though will all this tech while cool actually help margins for construction companies and by the way if they save money, that doesn't necessarily mean that house that you're going to buy is lower. But I'm as, but mm-hmm. I'm assuming they would. So, is it? Are you seeing any indica- indication or any tech out there that actually would reduce costs enough to increase margins? I mean, there's a lot of tech out there. I can't say that I can tell you. Will they do that? Will they reduce margins? I don't know for sure. I think they're trying. But you raise a really good point. I think the the thinking behind it is, okay, if we can move faster, we can build more and thus make more money because we can build more things in a shorter amount of time. Um, That might be the logic behind it. And that also kind of leads to something else that one of the people surveyed pointed out that we're seeing more and more modular construction or prefab building. And actually Kyle Wiggers just covered a week or two ago that Mighty Buildings raised $52 million to build its 3D printed prefab homes, which, you know, this concept seems to be growing in popularity depending on where you are. And so that's another interesting concept because, you know, you can, you can build a, these homes can be built in like a month or so compared to six or seven or more of like a, a traditional house. So that's something else that's happening in this space that that continues to kind of take off. Yeah. I, I wanted to circle back to the labor point though, and the idea of margins. I think it's a great question, Kirsten. In the piece that uh, Karan Bashan wrote for, for TechCrunch Plus on this, he had a quote from um, Ridwick Pavan, the founder and CEO of Krava, who said that he believes that construction industry will have no option but to lean towards technology to close these labor gaps due to a couple of reasons. And I was kind of stuck on that because technology can be expensive. Why is that the solution here? How does it work on a margin basis? Here's my thought. Uh, labor shortages are resolvable with large increases to offered payment for that labor. If you have an issue, you can just double the pay and you'll have more applicants and it'll kind of sort out. So if companies are choosing to not do that and they're choosing to lean more into technology, I think it would imply that it is a more cost-effective approach to solving the issue. If that will improve margins or just maintain them, I don't know. But I do think economics are at the root of what we're describing here. And there's even some VCs getting into this. You know, the Suffolk Technologies put together a $110 million fund we learned back in July to back companies kind of in this space. So certainly people think that it'll be sufficiently efficient that people will want to buy it, the technology that is. Yeah, there are. there's actually a lot more VC firms investing in this space than people might realize. There's brick and mortar ventures. It's been doing it now for a few years. Um, and one of the the founders of that firm is of the Bechtel family big construction giant. Oh, thank you. I was, that that meant nothing to me. (laughs) Right. But it's anyway, so it's, it's actually something that I think has been quietly happening for a little while now. And, and again, it's one of those not super sexy industries, but, but it still has like a lot of important implications for all of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
the startups that I want to, I, I want to see some, maybe, maybe it's on the software side, probably of like how to find or leverage cost efficiencies when it comes to commodities, because that drives a lot of construction prices up. Right. And we have, you know, infl- the consumer price index rose, what was it? 3.7% through September. So that was just announced this week. And, and you see that kind of pricing pressure put in construction. It would be cool to see. Maybe there's an opportunity there. You can't get away from commodity pricings, but maybe there's a way that software can be used to, you know, find the the best prices out there. Yeah, there is a startup that I covered, a female-led construction startup, which is always kind of refreshing, called Kojo. And they do construction material management software, um, which actually to that point, helps contractors kind of streamline their purchasing of materials so that in, in their inventory to hopefully save, help them save money. So I think there, there is definitely a lot going on here. And, you know, hopefully the innovation continues and the stakeholders in this, in this space are more and more open to using technology. Yeah. And if you want to learn more about that, we will have links in the show notes over on TechCrunch.com to a number of venture surveys and also individual news items on companies operating in the space. But my friends, we are out of time. We have to go away for now. Don't worry, everyone, though. Of course, Equity will be back on Monday. We come out three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, bringing you a kickoff, an interview, and then, of course, our weekly news roundup with my friends here. And if you want even more Equity, we're on X and Threads under the handle EquityPod. And of course, you can use the code Equity, all caps, to save money on an annual pass to TechCrunch Plus. Kirsten, Marianne, as always, an absolute pleasure. And I'll talk to you guys in a week. Ciao. Bye. Equity is hosted by myself, Editor-in-Chief of TechCrunch Plus, Alex Wilhelm, and TechCrunch Senior Reporter, Mary Ann Azevedo. We are produced by Teresa Loconsolo with editing by Kel. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator. And a big thank you to the audience development team and Henry Picavet, who manages TechCrunch Audio Products. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.